Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Dick Clark introduced a generation of teenagers to Jingle Bell Rock by Bobby Helms on the December 18th, 1957 episode of American Bandstand. We played a few Christmas songs today, but his really is about the only Christmas song that came out this year that got to be anything. And well, it should. It's a nice one. The Jingle Bell Rock. Teens on the show danced in time to the music, holding their own jaunty jingle hop, as the lyrics say. Decades later, Bobby Helms' Jingle Bell Rock is still the source of a lot of hip swiveling fun. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock. Jingle bells swing and jingle bells ring. As of this recording, it's hanging out at number three on Billboard's Holiday 100 singles chart, which is where it also stayed most of last year. It's consistently topped only by Brenda Lee's Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree and Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. My name is Annie Zaleski, and you're listening to Have You Heard This One, a show about the stories from the back pages and hidden corners of music history. I'm a Cleveland-based journalist whose work has appeared in The Guardian, NPR Music, and Rolling Stone, among many others. I'm also the author of several music books. Most recently, This Is Christmas, Song by Song, which delves into the origin stories of 100 of the most memorable Christmas songs of all time. Since 2019, the original version of Jingle Bell Rock and a 1964 cover by Brenda Lee have both been fixtures on Billboard's Holiday 100 chart. Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell Rock, Jingle Bell Chime and Jingle Bell Chime. Over the years, the song has also stayed in the spotlight thanks to new covers by country artists, including Reba McIntyre, Blake Shelton as a duet with his then-wife, Miranda Lambert, Rascal Flatts, George Strait, and Randy Travis, among many, many more. In fact, artists spanning genres have put their twist on the song. From Hall & Oates to Kelly Clarkson to The Fall, which was released as a John Peel session, of course. The Jingle Bell, that's the Jingle Bell, that's the Jingle Bell Rock. Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell. That's just a few of the hundreds of versions of Jingle Bell Rock that have been recorded in the last 50 plus years. However, Bobby Helms' version of Jingle Bell Rock remains the quintessential take. It's not just the charts that it tops. There is also its placement in several notable movies. You can hear the song playing over the opening credits of Lethal Weapon, and it also appears in the 1996 Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sinbad comedy, Jingle All the Way. And in the 2004 movie Mean Girls, 
which will get a musical reboot in 2024, a cover of Jingle Bell Rock sung by the cast, soundtracks an iconic Lindsay Lohan dance scene. What a bright time, it's the right time to rock the night away. Jingle Bell time. Despite all its success, Jingle Bell Rock is a Christmas song with a mysterious past. Nobody can agree on who should get credit for writing the tune, for starters. And some of the musicians involved feel that their success came at a very high price. I love holiday music, not just quirky songs like Christmas Wrapping by the Waitresses, which is about a sassy romantic encounter in a grocery store after a year of missed connections. But also whimsical tunes like the Chipmunk song and I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas and tearjerkers like Wham's Last Christmas. After writing my book on Christmas songs, however, I discovered that some of them aren't as merry or bright as we think. You might not expect Jingle Bell Rock to fall into that category. The jaunty tune is about a festive holiday celebration in dreamy places like Jingle Bell Square or on a cozy sleigh ride. The song captures a sense of wholesome fun and excitement and nostalgia for a simpler time. It's also widely considered one of the first rock and roll Christmas songs. And the clever lyric, Rock the Night Away, references a popular rock song from the era. Bill Haley and the Comets, Rock Around the Clock. At the time, the idea of mixing Christmas with rock and roll was still novel. For the song's rock and roll sound, we can thank the tasteful guitar licks of Hank Garland. He was a wildly talented guitarist who sold a million copies of Sugarfoot Rag in 1949, a song he wrote when he was just 18 years old. Hank later became a legendary session guitarist. He played on multiple Elvis Presley hits, including the groovy Little Sister. Little Sister, don't you? Little Sister, don't you? And on country hits, including Patsy Cline's Walking After Midnight. I go out walking after midnight. On Jingle Bell Rock, Hank's riffs are upbeat but subtle, setting a festive atmosphere as if he's part of a backing band at a party. These riffs mesh perfectly with the background vocals, which were done by Nashville session icons, the Anita Kerr singers. Led by Anita, the vocal group backed country music A-listers for Decca Records in the 1950s and early 1960s, including Eddie Arnold, Red Foley, 
and Chet Atkins. On Jingle Bell Rock, they added subtle oohs and lilting harmonies throughout, mimicking the chatter of happy party guests. Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell, Jingle Bell Rock. Jingle Bell Chime and Jingle Bell Time. Like many Christmas songs, Jingle Bell Rock is more famous than the person who sang it. So, who was Bobby Helms? Bobby was born in Indiana in 1933. He started out performing with his brother, Freddie, on a radio show called the Monroe County Jamboree that happened to be hosted by their dad, Fred. Bobby later became a band member on Happy Valley Folks, a radio-turned-TV show founded by Uncle Bob Hardy, a legendary broadcaster. When Uncle Bob moved on to his next project, Freddie took over Happy Valley. However, Bobby went with Uncle Bob to play on the Hayloft Frolic, and it would become the most popular TV show in Indiana. This TV gig helped Bobby gain a foothold in Nashville. Uncle Bob called country star Ernest Tubb and told him about the promising young player, as the story goes. That led to Bobby receiving an invite to perform on the Ernest Tubb Midnight Jamboree. The gig went so well that Ernest tipped off Paul Cohen, a producer at Decca Records. Bobby successfully auditioned for the label and signed a record deal. In 1957, Bobby had two songs that reached number one on Billboard's country radio airplay and sales charts. First was the wistful heartbreak ballad, Froline, which was written for and rejected by Ernest. And then the waltzing love song, My Special Angel. angel. The latter earned him a spot performing on The Ed Sullivan Show. In fact, he would be given his first gold record for the song on the show by Ed himself, a mere six weeks later. Bobby was interested in writing his own material. He wrote the aching, I Don't Owe You Nothing, which was released in 1956. It's a piercing dig at a dishonest ex-partner. I don't owe you nothing. That's what I can always say. In 1986, Bobby told an interviewer for classic bands that he made changes to his 1957 hits. He changed the melody of Frauline, which was originally a waltz, and added high vocal parts to My Special Angel. In modern times, that kind of a change would get an artist some songwriting credits. And that's important because for every percentage of a song's publishing the writer controls, they make money. To earn money from their music, songwriters often work with publishers. These are companies that collect and give out what's known as publishing royalties. Writers can receive royalties in multiple ways. One, when their songs are played on the radio or performed live. Two, when someone buys a copy of their songs. And three, when their songs are licensed for things like movies, TV shows, and ads. When different artists cover a song multiple times, songwriters can make a lot of money. Given Bobby's interest in putting his own stamp on songs, 
it would have been odd if he didn't change Jingle Bell Rock before recording it. He says he did a lot more than that, which we'll get to in a minute. However, the credited songwriters on Jingle Bell Rock are, and always have been, Joseph Carlton Beale and James Ross Booth. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. James was born in 1917 in Sweetwater, Texas. At 18, he wrote his first song and also founded the Exchange Quarterly, a magazine for Texas writers. His standards were very high. James edited submissions to the magazine, laid out the text, and even did the typesetting himself at his parents' house. Our only taboos are dullness in fiction and hackneyed or maudlin subjects in poetry, he told the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. When he went off to college, James won a national poetry writing contest, and he later served in World War II. Joseph also gravitated toward writing. Born in 1900, he was something of a dilettante. After graduating from Boston University, he became an editor at a newspaper called the Boston Evening Transcript. Joseph later oversaw programming at the New Orleans radio station WDSU, and then moved into public relations, where he handled several radio and business conferences. He turned his attention to music by the mid-50s. Joseph co-wrote his first song at 54, a tune called Unsuspecting Heart. The version you're about to hear is sung by jazz singer Terry Stevens. Unsuspecting heart You took advantage of my Joseph, and a man named Bob Singer, wrote the song in a New York City apartment. Their draft version had 52 bars, which was a songwriting faux pas. At the time, popular songs generally only had 32 bars. The men hired a singer named Kitty Carr to record the demo. And DJ Jack Terry broadcast a demo version of the song over the airwaves via WRUL, which had international reach. This placement was likely no accident. Joseph worked on behalf of the station briefly in 1954. He served as manager of the new public service division of the worldwide broadcasting system, which operated WRUL. Later in the year, he opened the Beale Radio and Television Agency. One of his first accounts, 
was Worldwide Broadcasting System and, by extension, WRUL. Connections aside, the response to Unsuspecting Heart was positive and led to the song being published. Despite being up against the odds, multiple versions of the song charted. Terry Stevens, in particular, rocketed the stardom thanks to the song. In 1955, Joseph also co-wrote Pat Boone's Take the Time, the B-side of his popular song, G. Whitaker's. Hold my hand through wrong Not long after, Joseph linked up with James Ross Booth, who was reportedly running a textile design business in New York. The duo started co-writing songs. Records from the Library of Congress show that the pair copyrighted several songs in 1956 and 1957 that have, apparently, never been recorded. However, on October 25th, 1957, the men received a copyright for Jingle Bell Rock. And that lines up with the November release date of Bobby's single, going by ads that appeared in publications including Billboard. Given the creative backgrounds of Joseph and James to that point, it's possible that they wrote Jingle Bell Rock, or at least some version of it, that became the song we all know and love today. There's even evidence they could explain the song's lyrics. A 1964 Press of Atlantic City article paraphrased an explanation from Joseph that says the rock of the song actually, quote, referred to the rocking of the sleigh as it was pulled by a horse through the snow setting alive several sets of jingle bells. Despite that, both Bobby and guitarist Hank Garland have also claimed they wrote the song. Although their stories changed slightly over the years, both men, Bobby especially, were adamant. Bobby repeatedly said he didn't want to record Jingle Bell Rock as it was written. He told classic bands that the demo version he was given to work with was just a guy playing an organ and singing. Bobby says that he and Hank fleshed out the rest of the track. So, that guitar that defines the song, the clever phrasing, all the instrumentation, most of this apparently didn't exist until Bobby got a hold of it, according to him. It was just a basic song. And Bobby says he, quote, changed the music around on it to boot. He also described one specific modification he made, adding a bridge. That's this part. What a bright time, it's the right time to rock the night away. Jingle bell His one-time manager, Dave Davis, echoed this when asked whether he thought Hank and Bobby wrote Jingle Bell Rock. According to Davis, Bobby claimed they also added a few verses and changed some lyrics. At the end of the session, they had created a whole lot of new parts to the song. One thing worth noting that may have Bobby's fingerprints on it is that the lyrics of Jingle Bell Rock don't mention Christmas at all. Bobby's one-time manager, John Kleeman, explained that Bobby's family was religious and he didn't want to link rock and roll with Christmas because his mom would disapprove. In Bobby's obituary in the Indianapolis Star, the newspaper included a quote from him where he said, They wanted a happy rock and roll song, but not necessarily a religious song, because rock and roll wasn't part of Christmas. We put words and music to it, and when it became a hit, we were all surprised. This quote was also consistent with previous interviews Bobby gave. 
He told the Indianapolis Star in 1992 that he built Jingle Bell Rock off an existing tune. He didn't want to record it because it was of such poor quality. So he and other musicians, including presumably Hank Garland, improved it. That poor quality song was allegedly called Jingle Bell Hop. Cheekily, Hank told the Jacksonville Business Journal in 2001, I let it hop back to where it came from. It wasn't any good. Bobby had the same reaction to the demo, according to John Kleeman, who told the Los Angeles Times in 2022 that Helms minced no words. Quote, he said the electric organ sounded bad and the guy who was singing was terrible. Lending credence to this theory, Jingle Bell Hop does appear in the ASCAP songwriting database. Joseph Carlton Beale and James Booth also copyrighted the song. But curiously, not until August 1958, well after Jingle Bell Rock became a hit. But then there's this. According to a 2004 Folio Weekly story, Hank owned an original copy of the sheet music for Jingle Bell Rock, penciled in his meticulous hand. In addition to a sworn statement by one of the studio musicians on Jingle Bell Rock that Helms and Garland wrote the song. To date, neither Bobby nor Hank has received songwriting credit for Jingle Bell Rock. After Jingle Bell Rock, James and Joseph never had any other widespread mainstream success in songwriting, though they kept writing and continued to work in music. James later managed an artist named Laura Crane, whose debut single consisted of two Booth Beale compositions, I Reach for a Star and The Heavens Cry. Charmingly, the pair also co-wrote songs that Atlantic City used to promote itself to business groups and tourists. Joseph wrote several additional songs with other collaborators, such as Winter Champagne, which was recorded in 1962 by a Philadelphia group called High Hopes, and the USA March, which the U.S. Marine Band added to their library. Bobby Helms reportedly received royalties for sales of his version of Jingle Bell Rock as the artist who recorded the song. And the Los Angeles Times reported in 2022 that Bobby also received performance royalties. But he didn't receive royalties as a songwriter. The evidence begs the question, why didn't Bobby ever try filing a lawsuit to earn that songwriting credit and the royalty payments that would come with it? Jingle Bell Rock was a massive success, and he could have earned a lot more money from it than he did. In fact, his estate could still be earning money from every YouTube stream or movie and TV show that uses a cover of Jingle Bell Rock. I'm looking at you, Mean Girls Reboot. Tonight, I am thrilled to be here to introduce the incredibly talented cast of my Broadway musical Mean Girls. They're here to perform the Bobby Helms classic Jingle Bell Rock. And due to the way laws are written, when Jingle Bell Rock is in heavy rotation on U.S. terrestrial radio stations every Christmas, Bobby isn't getting paid. Only the songwriters are. In 2001, entertainment lawyer Bill Whitaker told the Jacksonville Business Journal that he believed Decca Records thought it had the rights to the Jingle Bell Rock recording session. Bobby and Hank could only copyright their work and collect publishing royalties if they wrote what amounted to a new song. Modifying an existing song wouldn't count. This wouldn't be as far out as it sounds today. 
In the 50s, a powerful label like DECA had carte blanche to set the terms, especially with young or up-and-coming artists. Taking all the songwriting royalties to the recording and paying Bobby and the musicians on the track a flat fee as an advance wouldn't be out of the ordinary. In fact, that's the structure of a lot of record deals now. Bobby also blamed naivete on his part. I guess I could have sued, but I was 19 years old, he told the Franklin, Indiana Daily Journal in 1990. I was making so much money at that time, I didn't care. In a sad footnote, that same 1990 article notes that Bobby spent a lot of the money he made early in his career on medical expenses for his wife, Dory. In 1968, she had what was termed, quote, a nervous breakdown and was frequently in the hospital. Tragically, Hank was in a serious car accident in 1961. He was in a coma for three weeks, and after leaving the hospital, he received treatment at a mental hospital, including shock treatments, Thorazine, and even chemotherapy that left him significantly impaired. His brother Billy came to believe that the car accident happened because unknown people shot at his car. They set him up on the road and tried to kill him, he told Folio Weekly, and he didn't die, so they took him out and shocked his brains where he wouldn't remember nothing. That is a jaw-dropping accusation. But according to Billy, Hank was concerned someone was out to get him for reasons that were unclear. What was obvious is that the powers that be in Nashville weren't thrilled that Hank didn't continue to allow record labels to control his career after his early experiences with DECA. Hank had formed his own record company and a publishing house and was going to open a studio in Miami. Hank also wasn't afraid to speak his mind. He was very angry about the way the record companies were doing people, his brother Billy said. He basically grew up in it and knew how crooked it was. Hank had talked with a lawyer about his 1949 hit Sugarfoot Rag, a song he wrote, played on, and copyrighted. However, some unknown entity later added other people to the copyright, which meant his share of the royalties was diminished significantly. According to Billy, the lawyer said something strange that wasn't ever explained and sounded like a threat. Hank, you have a family. You're working here. I would suggest you just be quiet about this. The Garlands refused to be quiet, however. In 2003, Billy sued the music publisher Warner Chapel Music, which owned Jingle Bell Rock, and also long controlled the publishing of major songs, including Happy Birthday, for what Folio Weekly reported was fraud and intentionally inflicting emotional distress. A lawyer persuaded Billy Garland to refile with more allegations, copyright infringement, unfair trade practices, unfair competition, and unjust enrichment. The resolution of the case is difficult to find, although the Los Angeles Times reported in 2022 that a federal judge dismissed all counts except one. Bobby Helms continued having success even after Jingle Bell Rock, earning six gold records overall. He allegedly almost booked a Las Vegas show with the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, but the show fell through because nobody could decide the headliner. In 1958, he was in a movie called Case Against Brooklyn, singing his hit song, Jacqueline, and he had a few more top 20 country hits, the last being 1970's Mary Goes Round. 
And Jingle Bell Rock appeared on the country charts again in early 1997, thanks to its appearance in the movie Jingle All the Way. But Bobby's career never again reached the heights it did in the late 1950s. Like the Garlands, he came to wonder if nefarious forces were in play. In an explosive 1986 interview with classic bands, he claimed that there were mysterious people in Nashville who didn't want him to succeed. As best as he could tell, the success of songs like Fraulein, which crossed over to the pop world and was a huge hit in Germany, caused his label to drop other artists so they could focus on Bobby. He alleged that these unknown people held a grudge and sabotaged his career. See, I've been getting threatening letters about if I went back in the business, they was going to kill me or my wife or my kids, he said. I just got a letter two weeks ago. They don't want me back in Nashville because Fraulein changed the business from last time. And see, the people don't like it. They feel like I'm going to rock the boat or something. Bobby noted he informed the FBI about the first letter he received, which said, We have stopped your career for 20 years and we won't let you get started now and we'll put out a contract on you that won't be canceled. The second letter he got was menacing and cryptic. We see that you have paid no attention, it said. However, Bobby noted that his suit and guitar had recently been installed in the Country Music Hall of Fame. So, see, somebody in Nashville didn't like that even, he concluded. It's unclear whether the songwriting controversy around Jingle Bell Rock ties into these accusations, and there are other possible reasons for these career lulls. Bobby's producer, Paul Cohen, left Decca Records in 1962, and Bobby told classic bands he had trouble connecting with other producers creatively. Musical styles changed once the Beatles arrived in 1963, and Bobby's music wasn't as on trend. Plus, a 1979 newspaper feature on him also alleged that he lived with but overcame alcoholism during the 1960s. Bobby Helms died in June 1997 after struggling with health issues, including emphysema. By the end of the year, lawsuits had erupted over his estate. In one lawsuit, his former manager, John Kleeman, and another man claimed they had, quote, exclusive rights and licenses for Bobby's master recordings and musical performances, according to the Indianapolis Star. In 1999, two other people involved in another company said to have promoted Bobby's music filed a lawsuit seeking future royalties from the records. In 2000, a judge ruled that these royalties would be given to Bobby's estate, not the individual people making claims. Chances are good we'll never know the exact truth about who wrote Jingle Bell Rock. In doing research for this episode, I discovered so many different variations on the origin story, all told by the players involved. We'll never know exactly what happened in this recording session. And most of the people who were there have unfortunately since died. Given its popularity and how much joy the song adds to the holiday season, it's absolutely wild how many legal fights and conspiracies swirl around Jingle Bell Rock. So, as you're mixing and mingling with the jingling beat this year, don't forget the mystery and drama at the heart of the song. This episode was written and hosted by Annie Zaleski. Have You Heard This One is brought to you by Nevermind Media. 
Our sound designer is Madeline McCormack. Anna McLean is our producer. Our editorial director is Courtney E. Smith. And our executive producer is Melissa Locker. Thanks to Stephanie Aguilar and Joyce Reiser for production support.